Well, thank you guys so much for having me, and I've already enjoyed my time here. Got to spend some time with the class already and enjoyed worship. And uh, I believe that God gave us Isaiah 43 for today. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. That's not something I often say. I'm not the kind of person who just opens up the Bible randomly, closes my eyes, points to a verse, and says, oh, that's what the verse is for today. Maybe I should do that more, but I don't. And my plan wasn't to do anything with this verse at all today. And when I heard from Elizabeth that uh, we were reading, that you're reading uh, Isaiah 43, I said, well, I've already got plans. I've already got uh, worked out what I'm gonna, that's what I thought to myself. Um, but God had a different one. He was doing something new. I just hadn't, hadn't seen it yet. I wasn't, he hadn't let me in on the, on the joke yet. So, because when I went to church last Sunday, of course, you know what the sermon was on. It was on Isaiah 43. So this kind of stuff, uh, so this was kind of like, I just, when I sat down, saw the bulletin, saw that, I just had to kind of laugh. And, um, and it's kind of like the joke I told when I left Chicago and said I'd never live in the Midwest because now I'm living in the Midwest. It's also like the joke I said when I'm never gonna do public speaking. So... <laughs> So Isaiah 43 is, is to a group of people. And in verse 18, it says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. And I'm glad we had this time of repentance because now we can do just that. Verse 19 says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. And verse 20 says, I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland so my children will be refreshed. My pastor, Pastor Steve Deneff, in preaching on this passage, made the point that a plot has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in a story, everything eventually submits to the plot. When God tells us to forget about former things and not dwell on the past, he isn't telling us to simply clear our heads. He's telling us to get a sense of direction from where things are going. We are to look at the new things he's doing. What is springing up? This is how we should orient ourselves to reality. All the subplots along the way should be understood in the light provided by this master plot. Revelations 21.5, behold, I'm making all things new. I've come to join your community over the next few days to discuss spiritual formation. And I've come to think that Isaiah 43 is all about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is about how God is forming us, how he's creating and recreating something new out of our lives and in our midst. Paul talks of a new creation. And to be able to recognize what he's doing and to participate in what he's doing, we must have some orientation, orienting point, an end, however far in the distance it may be. If we're to see what God is graciously doing, how he's making a way in the desert, and if we're to locate the refreshing springs along the way, Keith Drury has compared God's grace to a water spout. We can either remain under it or step away. And if we know the plot, if we have a better sense of where God is at work, what he's doing, what he's about, we can see his gracious work in places we'd otherwise miss it. We can thus intentionally stay under this renewing, recreating springs where we might otherwise fail to locate these springs. Joseph in Genesis had a sense of the plot. He had a sense of the new work that God was doing and where he fit in. And he had this perspective years later after all he went through. And this perspective enabled Joseph to say to his brothers who sold him into slavery years later, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. 
So what does this have to do with spiritual formation? What does Isaiah 43 have to do? Well, starting where God's plot ends with regard to our lives, what it is to be completely and perfectly formed provides a sense of direction. We can see the new things that he's doing. This can be an orienting aim, an organizing principle to see what God is doing, where he's at work, and what he has planned for us. It allows us to also participate and surrender to what he's doing, to be able to participate in the greatest story, and really, in the end, the only story, the story of God creating and recreating. I am doing a new thing. See, it is springing up. So then, what is it to be completely formed? Well, perfect formation, whoops, sorry. I'll leave it there. Perfect formation is being shaped or formed so that even in the midst of circumstances that tend to push us in another direction, even our immediate responses express Christ's vision, love, and intentions, and thus our Father's. Notice that in this definition, even our immediate responses express Christ's nature, those characteristics essential to who Christ is. So it's not just our thought out plans or what we think about doing, Rather, it's about a change in nature, our immediate responses. It's about who we are at the core. And this gets manifested in our emotional responses, in our immediate reactions, as well as our calculated responses. In short, formation is aligning with God's nature, with who God is. And being spiritually formed is being aligned, is coming into alignment with God's nature. So it's like, it's like a, a a tire alignment is what I say. It's like, a, it's like when, you're, when your car is not aligned and you're always having to drift and always push and move and it's work and it's effort, but then when you have your tires aligned, if you're like me, you don't even have to have your hands on the steering wheel. You just, I know, I, I keep my hands on the steering wheel. But it's easy, it's effortless. And this is like spiritual formation. It's being, our nature is being aligned with, with God's. But how do we know God's nature? Well, because we see it in Christ. And we know Christ through scripture and hopefully, hopefully, and this is something we'll talk about more uh, tomorrow through our experience within the church. At least we know him in this way if we're being a part of a church where spiritual formation is happening. And I think spiritual formation is a central purpose of the church. Dallas Willard makes the point that the need of the church is never more people, never more money, never more credentials. How do we know this, he asks? The church has been at its best when it has had the least of these. It was at its best when it had full, was full of people of transformed character. This results from the transformation of people as they live together under God. People catch it by contact with other people after an incubation period. Transformation is contagious, and once someone catches it, there's something living in them that they pass on. Scripture tells us that we, as a community of disciples, have been given all we need for this to happen. Second Peter 1.14 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them we may become partakers in the divine nature, partakers in the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And Ephesians 5, 7 says, therefore, if anyone in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. A new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is there, is here. 
So by truly experiencing God through Christ and within community of those living lives of surrender to God and to his ways, we have been given everything for life, everything for godliness, everything to be partakers in the divine nature. We've been given everything necessary to be aligned with God's nature. But being aligned with God's nature involves a dispositional shift so that in all things, in all circumstances, we have the disposition that God created us to have, a disposition that within our own unique personality is the same as Christ's. Now, a disposition is the being disposed or having the propensity to do certain things in certain situations. So it's a tendency to think in certain ways, to respond in certain ways, to have certain emotions. For instance, being generous is being disposed to give and to have the desire to give. Being loving is being disposed to love. So having the dispositions of Christ is having those immediate responses that Christ has. This requires a dispositional change in each and every one of us. And this dispositional change is expressed in a change in thought, in behavior, and emotion. But it really is a change in nature. It's a change in who we are at the core, resulting in a change in vantage point from our perspective and the way we interact with everything. It's from this vantage point that Paul talks about finding the secret of being content in all things, that the theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer manifested this nature and vantage point when he was stripped naked, led into the execution yard in a concentration camp and hanged. A close friend of Bonhoeffer who witnessed this recounts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed a few steps to the gallows. Brave and composed, his death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. In addition to being a way of shaping us, adversity and suffering exposes our nature. We can see what is internal to us, how we are, who we are at the core, how we've been formed. When everything external pushes us in one direction, and yet we go to the other. And we see what is the, our core dispositions. This is why Job is such a powerful book. When everything else is stripped from Job, and even though he's angry, confused, and wrestles with God, which are natural responses, he still says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he still has tenacious faith. I know my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, I will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Notice that when everything is stripped from Job, more than at any other time, he manifests his nature. And what he manifests is faith, hope, and love for God. Ultimately, what we see in Job is unconditional love for God. This is why the book of Job, this is what the book of Job is really about. Satan comes to the Lord and essentially says, the only reason Job loves you is because you give him things. And then the book of Job offers Job's life as a response to Satan's challenge. And we see throughout the book that Job loves God for who God is, not for anything else. Job loves God for nothing else. And this is really what formation is about. 
This is how it begins and ends with unconditional love. It starts with God's unconditional love for us, but it ends with us loving unconditionally as well. Loving God for himself and above all else and for nothing else and loving others as God has taught us to love and how we've learned to love from God. But love is something that grows and it is something we must learn how to do. We can't do it unless we've been changed, unless our dispositions are changed and we have a new nature. In a healthy marriage, there's no way you can love your spouse as much as, or you can't love your spouse when you get married as much as you're going to love them 50 years down the road. The reason is you don't know them as well. So you can't love those aspects of them you aren't aware of. And honestly, you don't always know how to love them. You don't know the right way to do it. Love involves being in sync, and being in sync requires growth together. It takes a while to be able uh, to complete each other's sentences and to know what the other one is thinking. It takes a while to know someone well enough to take them with you wherever you go. So I'll go out somewhere without my wife, something will happen, and before I know it, I've said in my head what, I, what Stephanie would have said um, automatically. So I kind of take her wherever I go, and I know her so much better than when we got married. She's rubbed off on me, and this is just one of the ways God has transformed me. But the point I wish to make here is that it takes a while to become in sync with another person. It takes a while to deeply know a person in order to deeply love the person. And it takes a while to develop the ability to love another person and for our nature and for this to be an automatic response to express this love. It takes a while for another person to rub off on us. And the same goes for completing God's sentences, for knowing what he's thinking, for being in sync with God, for his responses to rub off on us, for his love to rub off on us. We must grow up fully in God's presence. This is how we learn how to love God for nothing, by growing up in the presence of our Father who loves us for nothing. The God who loves us unconditionally must rub off on us. And for this to occur, we must grow up fully in his presence. But how do we grow up fully in the presence of God so that God's love rubs off on us? How do we grow up so that we live out God's love, the kind of unconditional love for him and others that is manifested moment by moment in our lives. Restated, how does spiritual formation occur? Growth, like life, requires certain conditions, and God's grace is the condition for spiritual formation. In one sentence, spiritual formation is the result of being in the gracious, loving hands of, uh, whoops, sorry, I'm skipping ahead here. <laughs> In one sense, spiritual formation is the result of being in the gracious, loving hands of the Father. It is being molded in his hands like a clay pot is molded in the hands of the potter. There's nothing clay does to deserve this, um, this molding. It doesn't deserve to be molded, in the, and we don't deserve to be molded in the image of God or to be partakers in his nature. God does it for nothing, just like he's created us for nothing that we've done. He loves us for nothing. However, unlike clay, we've been given the breath of life, and with this, we've been given the ability to move into and out of our Father's grasp. We can participate in God's molding of us, but this participation is passive in this sense. It is always God who molds us into who he's created us to be. We never do anything to be molded in this way or to deserve it. We can rather respond to God's molding touch and surrender and obedience, or we can resist his needing in the various areas of our lives. I get this image uh, 
that from God's perspective, you've got this, you're kneading this dough and you're kneading it into this perfect formation. You've got a mind of what it's gonna do and, and every so often it just starts pushing back and starts pushing back. It's like, it's like a, a strong-willed dough boy. That's what I, I, that keeps pushing back away from God. So, so we need to make sure we're not, we're not that. <laughs> so if, if, if our formation and perfection comes at the hands of God and our part is to surrender to his movements, to be in sync with his movements, to move as he leads us to move, and his direction. There's nothing we do to deserve his shaping. Rather, formation is God's gracious work in our lives. But God, the creator and sustainer of everything, the whole universe, works in more just, in just one way. And in fact, I think when we're attuned to him, when we are fully living in his presence, all things God works to the good of those who love him. And he's ready to use everything in our lives to build us up, to form us, so that we can truly live and truly love. So there are multiple ways in which God graciously works in our lives for transformation. In fact, he is graciously prepared to work through every event in our lives. And this work in our lives is continuously gracious because like life itself, we've done nothing to deserve it. So we need to think about this work. There are means of grace. There are means of God transforming us, not because we've done anything to deserve it. And there are multiple means of grace. And in fact, I think you can probably divide the means of grace into four overarching categories. There's birth and development. There's being overwhelmed or changed by a single event. We think of uh, Paul on the Damascus Road, or we think of uh, uh, John Wesley's warming heart experience. But more often and more common, and for longer periods of time in our life, God's means of grace are practices, rhythms of life, the way we live, and then community. And here I'm thinking of the historical community of the church that's formed the body of Christ and scriptures that we've inherited as well. So it's including that. So I'm going to say a few words about three and four um, practices and community because this is where the psychology of change comes into play, which is a theme we'll talk more on in Pulse. Practices and communities are typical and mundane means of grace. They are the everyday means of grace. We find, perhaps this is why we find them less amazing, because it happens every day, constantly. They're meant to be ordinary. They're meant to be part of everyday life. There's nothing sudden or surprising about them because they're typical. They always take time. Kind of like aging. You never realize it while it's happening. Then one day you look at an old picture of yourself and yep, you've aged. And then maybe you wake up and you recognize you've got a sore back and things like that. I mean, that's hypothetical, no personal experiences there. But the, I think transformation through practice and community is the same way. We don't realize it while it's happening. It takes us time to maybe stop and reflect where we were several years ago, how we would have responded for us to see it. And it takes time but that doesn't mean it's any less divine, that God's grace is any less at work in it, that it's a lesser means of grace. So I think of uh, the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness. I don't know if you've seen it, where the main character, Will Smith, perseveres through losing everything. He's living out of public bathrooms, and yet day in and day out, he does whatever he can to provide a better life for his son. He's completely devoted to it. And we are drawn to stories of perseverance like this one. And when they're told in their entirety, we find them extraordinary. 
but we like them to be told in about two hours and in a movie format. And we can see all the dips and valleys and all the high points and low points, and then they seem amazing. Well, this is, I think, how we should see our lives, and we're just somewhere in the middle. It's this amazing process of transformation that God has for us. And there's moments of failure and moments of success, but if you look at it in its entirety, you can see the amazing means of grace of growth in our lives. And this is how we should think of practices and communities as the everyday staples, the diet that is given to us to grow up fully in the presence of God. For God to be daily working in our lives. These are daily refreshing streams. They are typical means of grace. They are tuned, they are, they are used to tune us to who God is, what he's doing in our lives, to a relationship with him and to others. When we don't engage in practices or community, in the way that we're intended, the way I think we're created to, our spiritual life is running without essential nutrients meant to produce growth. It's like taking protein entirely out of your diet and wondering why you feel so weak. The Bible is a relational narrative of the God who created and sustains the universe and dwells amongst his people, lives amongst his people with a specific end in sight, flourishing love and life. And throughout scripture, the importance of practice and community is clear. However, God has also graciously given us the gifts of reason and observation, which enables us to intentionally participate in his continuing story and what he's doing amongst us. And we need to submit these abilities and devote these abilities to God's uh, intentions, to his grace that he's graciously given to us for his gracious plan in our life, to seek out and to live out ways of submitting to and participating in God's intentions for us in our various unfolding contexts. We need to be looking and be ways that God uh, is recreating our lives. Over the past 30 years or so, studies in the behavioral sciences have helped us develop knowledge about what promotes growth and the situations in which growth and change uh, typically happens. And I believe this research helps us discover things about the way God has created us to live. And I believe this knowledge can help us, the church, address this question. How does God intend us to structure our Christian practices and communities so that they open us up to all that God has for us, so that they are effective means of grace? This is a question that I hope you will reflect on for the rest of your time at Kingswood, but more than this, I hope that we'll reflect upon this together and start to think of practical answers and the ways we can apply this in our various Christian communities over the next day or so. Um, so I look forward to these discussions. And what I think we'll find is that the knowledge we gain through psychological studies on growth will help us more fully appreciate the communal practices that are part of our Christian heritage and reinvigorate them and bring them back because now we understand them and how God intends us to live in a way maybe we didn't fully before. My hope is that this will give us the perspective to reinvigorate the means of grace that often, I think, fall by the wayside. Thanks. Thanks.